Welcome, everybody. Um, you get to hear from me today. Um, Steve uh, took off on Friday to head to Wisconsin. Uh, unfortunately, his mom had a heart attack uh, on f- early Friday morning, and um, he wanted to be able to be with you, but he is where he should be right now. So uh, you can keep them in your prayers as uh, the outcome from that is still uncertain. So um, I get to be here, um, and that is always fun. <laughs> Sure. Um, I am very thankful that um, we have the Holy Spirit and that uh, the words I say aren't what's important. It's the Holy Spirit working in you guys as as we go through this. So um, uh, I did want to mention one other quick uh, note uh, of announcements. Um, uh, many of you guys know and have seen some emails. We're meeting with community groups uh, when it comes to our capital campaign and ramping up for that here in October. Um, Steve and I are, are planning meetings where we can kind of lay out the, the vision, uh, some of our goals and what that means for our body. Uh, and there's a meeting tonight. If you're not part of a community group or you're not going to be able to make one of those community group meetings, there's a meeting here tonight to walk through what that capital campaign means for us. Uh, it's at 6.30 this evening, uh, really low-key. We've got some dessert for you. Um, should be a really easy, fun time, no more than an hour. Um, and we've also got one on Wednesday at 6.30 as well uh, this coming Wednesday. So just want to make a note of that. Um, If you have not been with us before, we are in a series in Mark, um, going through the the book of Mark. Uh, We've made it to chapter 9 so far, Um, and it looks like we'll be wrapping up uh, the entire series right around Easter, uh, which is kind of exciting for us. Um, So today we're in Mark 38, um, and I'm going to read through the passage that we'll be discussing. Uh, If you want to turn with me, uh, you can, but we'll be going through piece by piece here. But uh, let's launch in. Uh, Mark 38, uh, 9, 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward Uh, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, that believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter crippled, enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, Before we dip uh, dip into some of the explanations and walking through that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we pray for your presence here this morning. Um, We've had a fantastic time of worshiping and praising you, recognizing who you are and getting our hearts set right. And as we read through this passage, Lord, um, by your spirit, would you do a work in us, um, whether that's encouragement or conviction or comforting, um, Lord, we know that your spirit brings about the truth and helps us to understand it. 
Um, We pray for that this morning as we read these passages. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So just a little bit of context on where we're at in this passage. Um, We've read through uh, in chapter 9 a couple of different stories. One where uh, the disciples were unable to cast out an evil spirit. Um, And through that we saw uh, the issue of of power and reputation and what that meant uh, to the disciples. And then uh, we found them arguing over who was the greatest um, and and who was to be where in, in Jesus' kingdom. Um, and we see there the issue of pride and position rear its head as well. Um, and it's, it's within this context of these, uh, these events that we continue on in this conversation that Jesus is having with them. So again, um, in Mark 9:38, um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be after, soon, boy, they could word this easier, couldn't they? (laughs) No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is a pretty intriguing account um, on at least two levels because of some of the unanswered questions here. Um, We're not privy to the identity of this this mystery exorcist guy. Who is he? We don't know and we don't find that out. Nor do we know how or why he began the role of casting out demons in Jesus' name in the first place. But here we see that the disciples were jealous jealous for Jesus' reputation which isn't a bad thing in and of itself. Um, But we also see that there's a hint of competition and insecurity. Uh, I mentioned the story where they had just recently failed to cast out the demon from a demon-possessed boy. And they're kind of like, hey, wait a second. This guy's um, casting out demons and healing. Uh, He can do that. Why couldn't we? There's a little bit of that in there. I mean, if we go back uh, to the Old Testament, there's a prelude to this story and this issue um, that Jesus addresses back in the time of Moses in Numbers 11. Moses was called to, uh, he was overwhelmed with the burden of leadership, and he was called to collect some other leaders other than himself to help carry the load that he was under. Um, And so they chose 70 leaders, uh, and They all gathered in the tent of meeting and God's spirit came on them and they all began to prophesy. And we join in that story here in Numbers 11, 26 uh, through 30. Um, I'll read the first part myself and then you'll see the rest on the screen. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And here Jesus, in addressing the disciples, has the same attitude don't stop them. That mighty work in my name, um, 
it's, it makes that even more difficult for him to speak evil of me. And he says, the one who's not against us is for us. And basically what he's saying is, um, as long as that guy is, is doing, doing that work, casting out demons in Jesus' name, we don't have to worry about him. At the very least, he's not going to be able to ba- talk bad about us. And he may be doing a great deal of good. If he isn't against us, and obviously if he's using my name to cast out demons, he's for us in some form or fashion. We don't have to worry about him. I, I want to take just a second and, and do a little sidebar on in Jesus' name. Um, it's something that we do uh, kind of formulaically when we pray. Um, I know it comes out of my mouth without even thinking. Um, when I pray something, in Jesus' name, amen. And I, I've, I've heard story of a, a young boy that actually thought that Jesus' last name was amen from that very phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. It's Jesus' name's amen. Um, so many of us know this already, but I, I just wanted to give a little bit of an explanation on this. Um, Going back to uh, like when Steve was a boy, when it was still kings and queens um, <laughs> around. Sorry, I hope he gets to listen to this one. Um, a monarch uh, would have no end to the duties and responsibilities that they faced. And uh, for all of the small detail things, they delegated their authority to others. Uh, an ambassador or an emissary or a servant might go out and have to perform responsibilities in the king's name. And, and what that meant was, as an ambassador, they represented the king. But even more so than that, um, as being in the king's name, they, in all, for all intents and purposes, were the king himself. They were the monarch themselves. And so when actions were taken or... Um, uh, words were spoken, it was as if the king decreed that um, in the king's name. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we're doing that same thing. We're saying those same things, that, that it's Jesus' decree. I, I, I'm, as I pray to God, I'm representing Christ in my words. That my words are according to his will and wishes. I don't know, it's kind of sobering when I think about that, the ways that I pray. Um, wow, did I really say that as if I was Christ beseeching his father on, on, on my benefit or on somebody else's benefit? We may look like we're doing things for and to others, but we're actually doing things for and to him, to Jesus. It's easy for us to lose sight of this. So, Sorry, end of sidebar there. This man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So with that, let's keep doing what God has called us to do. And the disciples at this point, they're, they're questioning Jesus about this guy. And, and really, it's a question of the validity of his ministry. Is what he's doing okay? Again, with a little uh, hit to their pride in there as well. And we can do the same thing. We can question the validity of other people's ministries. And what it comes down to, and and I think this question of in Jesus' name, uh, it's a question of whose authority are they under? Whose name do they act in? So when we question 
the validity of ministry, I think the same thing is true for us. We have to ask, whose authority are they under? Whose authority am I under? Whose name do they act in? Moving on in the passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This, to me, is one of the most sobering passages in the Bible. The section deals with sin and the seriousness of it. Uh, when I would explain sin to kids, and I've done this here before, um, my simple uh, elementary school definition of sin is choosing to do things my way instead of God's way. That includes the things that we don't always classify as sin, uh, gossip, lying, cheating, a little bit of stealing, maybe some slander or envy in there, um, idolatry. Sin isn't always considered a serious issue today in our culture, but it's a huge issue in the words of the Bible in the eyes of Jesus. And he, Jesus, uses a graphic image to paint a picture of how serious the issue of sin is with God. And uh, last week in Steve's message, uh, in the preceding passage, uh, Jesus brought a child and, and held him in his arms as he was making uh, his point about letting the children come to him. And, and this week he uses that same imagery, but in a really different way. Uh, he may even have that child still there with him. And it's a startling image. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be great, better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If you look up millstones, um, you may or may not be familiar with them. There is a, a base stone, a bed stone, uh, usually circular, and there's a, another stone called a runner that sits on top of it. Uh, the runner is usually a little concave, and the, the base stone is a little convex. Uh, there's usually grooves in that upper running runner stone. And uh, by various means, they'll, they'll turn that top stone, and through a, a hole in the center on the top, they would pour raw grain. And as it turned, it would grind that grain through the friction of the stones into uh, flour, or um, uh, depending on what, what the material is that they're using. Um, and those stones, they, they used to have, uh, even in Bible times, they had uh, hand mills uh, that were much smaller, uh, anywhere up to much larger mills. Those stones, uh, particularly that runner stone that's movable, um, in this reference, it's actually referencing the stone from uh, what they call a grist mill, and that's one where a donkey or horse would be attached to a pole on the top of that stone and turn that stone um, and these stones were uh, anywhere from 100 pounds, maybe for a handheld mill, uh, up to about 3,000 pounds. Uh, that's an enormous weight. In this illustration, uh, I think of something like diving weights. Being thrown into the ocean with uh, millstone around your neck uh, is pretty obviously a horrible thing. Uh, a diver might take a belt with some weight on it to help give them neutral buoyancy to, to stay under the water or even go all the way down to the, to the bottom uh, of, the, of the water. Those diving weights usually weigh between 5 and 40 pounds. So the 100 to 3,000 pound range, a little bit overkill. 
this, Jesus is saying, would be a better situation than if you sinned against an innocent person who believed in him and caused them to sin. I imagine him saying in a raspy voice, you'll be sleeping with the fishes. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe, Maybe he wouldn't do that. So why would Jesus say something like this? Because he knows, he knows where he's going with this. He knows that he's going to be talking about something that's worse even than that fate. Um, that topic, of course, is hell. I think Steve did this on purpose. He gets, gets to have me talk about sin and hell, all the, the fun, fashionable things. But hell is wildly out of fashion these days. If you're culturally appropriate, uh, you won't bring it up. Um, hell is one of those things that um, you're, if you believe it, you're superstitious and gullible. Hell was created, it was said, by religion to keep people in line and to keep them giving out of fear. It's a medieval superstition popularized by Dante and his Inferno. And we're modern and liberated and we've thrown off those shackles. Uh, my God, as it is posited, is a God of love that wouldn't throw anyone into hell. Those are some of the views that are taken now. And yet, Jesus talked about hell with absolute certainty. And in his opinion, it's something to be avoided at all costs. Look what he goes on to say. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The imagery from this passage is tied directly to uh, a few Old Testament scriptures, uh, particularly found in Isaiah and in, in Ezekiel. This one from Isaiah says this, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. As I said, you can find other references in, uh, further in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. But Jesus and the Old Testament reference this idea of where the worm shall not die and their fire isn't quenched. Um, Jesus' reference of hell brings with it an object example from right outside the walls of Jerusalem. The word that Jesus uses is Gehenna which originates from Hinnom, which uh, is literally the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a a small valley located um, outside the walls of Jerusalem on the south side of the city. And in Old Testament king's time, um, it had been used for child sacrifices to Moloch. Uh, They had performed those there. In the contemporary time to this story, uh, it was the city's refuse dump. Um, And with it being the dump, fires were burning there 24-7. And that's where not just your daily household garbage went, but it was animal bodies, horses, dogs, oxen. They were dumped there, and there was a lot of stench. It was a bad, awful place. 
and because it kept accumulating this mass of rotting corpses would foster maggots and they were everywhere you'd move something and there they were and it's in this this scene this picture um, that would instantly come to mind to anybody that Jesus was talking to about this and just like there where they had that visual of a maggot infested stench filled on fire dump um, they get that visual of where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. What Jesus is saying to them is that hell is a place worse than that valley of Hinnom. He's using the extreme language to illustrate the depth of the warning. Again, he's saying hell should be avoided at all costs. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't advocating we cut off our hands not telling us that we need to cut off our feet or gouge out our eyes. But what he's saying is that hell is such a terrible place that the pain and hardship in the right now is better than to go there with the ease of participation in sin. I'll say that again. He's saying that hell is such a terrible place that the pain and hardship in the right now is better than to go there with the ease of participation in sin. Take sin seriously and deal with the sin in your life with extreme prejudice. The consequences to departing from God's will are more harsh than any precautionary measure you can take. You can imagine how bad it would be if someone chopped your foot off. Hell's worse, worse than that. I, imagine the, the, the pain if somebody chopped off your hand. Hell is worse than that. Imagine the agony if someone came up and gouged out one of your eyes. Hell's worse worse than that. And because it's not right in front of us, we can minimize it. Adam and Eve, back in the garden, they chose sin in part because they were swayed by Satan's argument. And Satan's argument was, did God really say that sin would kill you? Because there wasn't that immediate threat. They didn't believe it. They chose sin and it corrupted all of creation. And we have the benefit of seeing that, that model and and learning from it. Um, But we also live in that corruption ourselves. And so we fall victim oftentimes to that same lie. Did God really say sin would kill you? Is it, are the consequences really that bad? The point is, this is what sin does. Sin maims us. Sin cripples us. Sin blinds us. Sin sends us to eternal separation from God in hell. Moving on, Mark 9:49. For everyone will be salted with fire. With this, there's there's two types of salting. You'll, you're either salted with the fire of Jesus, or you're salted with the fire of hell. Jesus' fire salts us and purifies us from sin. Hell salts with sin and it consumes us. 
the process of salvation and sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. The process of salvation and sanctification isn't easy and often feels like a fire. It hurts. It's hard. The only way from not being salted by hell is to escape through Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's a couple of important side notes here as well. Hell. Hell wasn't created for us. Hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels. And those that choose not to go uh, with Christ, join them. And in some ways, I think God doesn't even have to create hell. Um, We do a pretty good job of it. Um, When he removes his Holy Spirit, we tend to create hell ourselves. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book Lord of the Flies. Um, That's an example of the devolving world of our culture and our modern life. It's a living parable. Um, this week, Steve Steve pointed out to me this this story. I don't know if you guys saw it about a, uh, a New York teenager that was killed uh, and a fight over a girl. About 50 teens watched as Kashin Morris was stabbed, and rather than helping him, they videoed the event and watched him die. It's unthinkable, but that's what the world looks like without the Holy Spirit, without God when we reject Him. Jesus is the way through and out of this kind of fire. So come to Jesus. Give him your life. Put your trust in him. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Surrender to his authority. All of these are phrases that are saying, your house is on fire. Jump to safety while you can. If you don't jump to Jesus, you'll lose your life. If you jump to him, you'll save your life. Have you made that jump? Have you made that step? Have you been salted with the kingdom? Or are you drifting? Turning back to what God has called you out of and from and harboring willful sin is a dangerous choice. Mark 9.50 Salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with with one another. The salt that preserves our lives is the Holy Spirit. It's just like Lisa's guacamole. I may have to explain. Avocados are a weird thing, right? Um, they're cool and nice and they're fashionable, but um, let's be honest, they kind of taste like green water. That's the best way I can explain it. We were making guacamole the other day, um, and we've got a, a good mix that's that's uh, we, we really enjoy. Um, but when you finish the basic mix... Um, it's basically a pile of mashed avocados. Um, it's kind of bland. It's kind of 
green and watery tasting. And she always does this to me because the the ratios are tough, but she's like, you need to put some salt in that to to the right amount. When you put the salt in, that seasoning, it makes an amazing difference. It changes what was bland to vibrant. Um, It changes what was unappetizing to attractive to the hungry, to the point where you probably eat more guacamole than you need to and then can't eat dinner later on. (laughs) The salt that preserves our lives is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, the NIV NIV says that it's given to us as a deposit. Uh, The ESV calls it a guarantee. Uh, We're guaranteed the Holy Spirit when we surrender to Jesus' authority and seek his salvation. So how do we, as this passage says, how do we lose our saltiness? We lose our saltiness when God is no longer our first love. We lose our saltiness when we no longer obey the Holy Spirit. We lose our saltiness when we no longer read the Bible. We lose our saltiness when we sin and don't repent. We lose our saltiness when we no longer pray together. We lose our saltiness when we fight, quarrel, bicker, complain, grumble, etc., 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 engage in what Galatians 5 calls the sins of the flesh. As I uh, wrap up my comments here, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up a few minutes early. When we recognize how bad our sin is, when we realize what an affront it is to Jesus, that, that sin, is, as much as we diminish it, um, he died for that sin. He hung on the cross for that sin. When we realize what an affront to Jesus it really is, when we repent and say to God, no more of that. When I resubmit myself to the leadership and authority of the Holy Spirit, then in a kingdom sense, I become salty again. Let's go back to the original context of this passage. The disciples are trying to understand who's on Jesus' side and where they fit into those plans. What are they supposed to do and what can they do? Jesus addresses the issue at first by talking about the man who was doing unauthorized healing. But then he brings it back down to its simplest terms for each of them. They each had to deal with the sin issue, which ultimately is a control issue, which ultimately is an authority issue. Back to that original question of of what sin is. My will or God's will? Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. And as Steve would say, this is not a a do, this is a be. Have salt in yourselves. Be with the Lord. Pray with and to Jesus. Soak in his presence. Let us be a salty church. Will you pray with me? Father, these passages are so humbling and convicting. As I recognize in myself, Lord, the ways that I have grieved you with my willful sin, the things that I I try and diminish the consequences of and participate in, knowing full well what your will is. Lord, and I know that, that as humans, we all do that to a degree. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for repentant hearts, repentant heart for myself, repentant hearts for our body. Uh, Lord, that we would seek you, that seek your face and seek your greatness in the forgiveness that you offer. Um, but Lord, help us to remember that that's not without price, that, that Jesus paid that price for us, that he paid that cost that we can't pay, that we don't want to pay. Lord, and it's with that that it, it gives me joy um, through this process to know who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I lift up this time and, and pray that prayer again, that um, we would be, be a salty church before you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.